You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Michael Finkel is the author of The Stranger in the Woods and True Story, Murder, Memoir, and Mia Coppa, which was adopted into a major motion picture. He's written for National Geographic, GQ, Rolling Stone, Esquire, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, and The New York Times Magazine. His new book is The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and a Dangerous Obsession. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Happy to be here, Rick. You know, this book reads like lightning. It starts out like a lighthearted caper novel. It, it, it's all true, but it starts out like a kind of lighthearted caper novel. That's how you read it in a ticket, and it has a, a really fascinating and involving emotional arc. But I think most people can read this novel pretty quickly, book, and read this book quite quickly, But and it makes you feel like you just were able to sit down and write this out in like two weeks. That was not the case, was it? I mean, I'm sort of happy that you're saying that. I I sort of strive for that uh, feeling that you just sort of uh, are sitting down next to a buddy at the bar and he's regaling you with this story or she. Um, I guess this, the, the dirty, dark secret is it takes forever to make it sound like I just dashed it off. But um, yes, I... <laughs> I mean, in terms of just researching and interviewing, I'm glad that you emphasize that The Art Thief, this book, is a true story. Not based on a true story, not 99% true, no names changed, no identifying details changed. This is exactly as it happened to the best of my abilities. And yeah, I spent 11 years from the first time I wrote a handwritten letter to The Art Thief, who's the subject of the book, until the book was published. And I do, I do it. I'm sitting down in my little writing room, which I'm actually speaking to you from now because my house is so noisy filled as it is with um, dogs, children, and I was going to say wives, plural, but I am in Utah. So I just wanted to emphasize that it's just one wife. Um, uh, but uh, I do, I, when, I, when, it's in, when, I, when I'm sitting down to write in my head, I really do strive to make things conversational. I really don't know how other writers work too well. I'm a little, I was going to say, nervous but maybe the truth is i'm a little competitive and i'm buddies with all photographers those are my people writers mm, a little frisian there but uh thank you very much you actually said the 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 phrase that that makes me the happiest which is just it felt like it took you two weeks to write would that be i wish that were the case boy i would if you could give me some sort of fast writing pill i wouldn't care about the side effects that would be great what led you to talk to Stefan Breitweiser in the first place? Or how did you first hear about his stories? Okay, so yes, Stefan Breitweiser is the name of the art thief. And I spend a lot of my time when I'm between stories or even procrastinating, uh, reading small town newspapers back in the my children don't even know about this back in the days that newspapers came on paper and were delivered to this crazy box that people used to have at the top of their driveways. I think they called it a mailbox, I would tell my children. You know, uh, I used to subscribe to a decent number of small town papers. And one of the great things of the internet, of course, is that you can now sort of look at pa- small town papers around not just the country, but the world. I 
I speak French with a terrible accent, but I do speak French fluently. Um, and I was reading in a relatively small paper in France online about this art thief that was facing criminal charges. And I remember in just a few paragraphs, there were three astonishing things. One was this sheer number of art thefts that mentioned that this person, Stefan Breitweiser, had stolen from more than 200 museums, churches, galleries, 300 works of art worth by some accounts $2 billion. Now that unto itself would just get all my journalistic you know, senses going. Then it continued by saying that all of these crimes were nonviolent during the day, opening hours while people and sometimes guards were in the room. And I was just like, I need to know more. And then the final bit that just threw it from uh, extraordinarily fascinating to I am now completely obsessed was the mention in this article that Stefan Breitweiser, the art thief, did not do this for money. He just hung these $2 billion worth of art in his bedroom to enjoy. And if that's not journalistic catnip, Rick, I don't know what is. You know, it's also, as readers, it's just a remarkable experience. Um, you take us right to, you know, put us in, in media rest, as they say, serves right like in the middle of, of one of his thefts. And one of the things that I think you do really well in this book is it has a very small cast. You're, in a sense, you're really lucky. You really have three main characters. They're, they're Stefan, uh, and Catherine, his girlfriend, and his mother, Muriel Breitweiser. There are some cops that come along later who are interesting fellows, but they're not part of the emotional arcs of the book as the three main characters are just uh, fascinating. Um, so talk about creating these characters, you know, bit by bit, because it start, the book starts out with such a, a, a clear vision of Stefan and, and, uh, and Catherine as they are involved in, in this theft, and then take us further and further in. So talk about these characters. Okay, first of all, Stefan Breitweiser, sometimes when I talk about this, it seems like I'm recounting some historical events. Stefan Breitweiser, the art thief, the subject of the book, The Art Thief, uh, was born in 1971. So this is not ancient history. This just happened, in fact, I attended his last trial in March of 2023, like six or seven months ago. So this is really um, a modern story, which I also love. I'm the type of journalist that isn't too skilled at recreating historical things. I need to talk to the main person uh, or else I just don't feel like uh, secondhand sources work for me. Uh, and so I mentioned the 200 thefts and it, a book, I think, recounting 200 thefts might be interesting, but after a while, I think they would get a little cold and repetitive. I think a good book, and I'm not saying this one is, you'll have to decide, um, has a, a little heart in the center. And I actually, more than, I mean, I, I mentioned the facts that I love, the, the thefts, the style, the, the, lack, of, the lack of monetary um, uh, you know, emphasis on this, just it was an aesthetic desire. But I really feel that what makes this book um, project, what made it all 
worthwhile was that there's a love story shot through the center of this. Stefan Breitweiser, for the most part, did not steal alone. He started stealing in his early 20s, uh, and he really got onto this pace of stealing that is unprecedented in the annals of art crime. I mean, maybe during wartime, armies raided museums at, a, at this crazy pace, but we're talking about the whole Nazi army, not, not two 20-year-old couples. Anyway, Stefan Breitweiser met a girl. Her name is Anne Catherine Kleinklaus. They were both 20 years old when they met. Now, I talked to many people who knew this couple, and they said that what you might expect, wow, what an unhealthy thing, what a, what a ridiculously uh, um, poor relationship. I mean, they became thieves, but also at the same time, and this sort of explains everything, uh, everyone I talked to, including Bright Weiser himself, uh, said that they were in love, truly and deeply in love. And of course, any of us out there who have ever been in love, myself included, you know that it can make you do crazy, illogical, wonderful, ridiculous things. And so they were in love. Now, Breitweiser stole, I mentioned his pace, he and Breitweiser and his girlfriend, Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus, stole for about eight years in the late 90s into early 2000s, an average of one art theft every 12 days for the better part of a decade. So Breitweiser was a full-time art thief. In other words, he was unemployed. He did not have a job. He kept this art and he put it in his bedroom. And because he had no money, he lived with his mother. Yes, he did. Uh, so Stefan Breitweiser's parents divorced. His mother got a tiny house in the suburbs of a French town that you haven't probably heard of called Malouz, possibly the least attractive city in the most beautiful nation, in your, one of the most beautiful nations in the world. And uh, he lived in this attic there was like a bedroom and a salon, low ceilinged up this like narrow stairway in this nondescript house in the suburbs of a, you know, kind of a hard scrabble town. So he basically lived in the attic of his mother's house with his girlfriend. And if there was anything that I would, an image that I would love to impart to your listeners, I mean, we'll probably get into this, but this attic chamber just, it, it, it's, I've seen home video. It is one of the most amazing real things that I, if, in fact, forget it. Let's just open it all up to fantasy. Like, I don't even know if any movie director can come up with something so ridiculous. They live, Stefan and Anne Catherine, they had this beautiful antique four poster bed. It was a gift from his grandparents and they surrounded themselves. It was like they lived in Alibaba's cave. You can, you can go inside a treasure chest in a room in the Louvre. They lived amidst treasure, these, this young couple in their attic room and, for a while, he, Brightweiser, you know, you're probably thinking, what did his, well, didn't his mother know? And we'll just leave, we'll let you open it, let you ask me more questions before I babble more. But the, he sort of started lying to his mother. Oh, this is just things from flea markets or knockoffs of real masterpieces. And I just want to uh, decorate my ugly attic is what he told his mother, at least at first. This is a book that turns on the reader's wheels to encompass two opposing emotions at the same time. This is a book that lives and makes hits light speed on the engine of cognitive dissonance. On one hand, the way you paint Stefan, we really like him. And even when he's doing something terrible, he's not really hurting anybody exactly, physically at least. Yet, um, we 
even if he's doing something terrible, we really like him and admire him. And that love story you talked about between him and Catherine is, is part of it. But it's also just a part of... Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess what comes out is that he is himself an amazing artist. His art form is unacceptable. <laughs> it's a terrible, consists of terrible deeds. Yet, the, when we, when you write about him doing the things that he and Kat, and Catherine did, you just, it's astonishing. And in a sense, the way it's written is beautiful. Yet at the same time, you're thinking, oh my God. So uh, talk about that. For you as a, you, you met the man, you talked with him. The the wheel of cognitive dissonance must have, you could have dug yourself a hole to China. I really love that you use that phrase, cognitive dissonance. You know, what it means is basically you're being pulled in a couple of directions at once. Now, I mentioned I read that little uh, squib of an article in the French media, and then I wrote one of the ways I like to get in touch with someone, and I feel, even though I'm giving away some of my technique here, I feel like handwriting a letter is like a really beautiful way to contact someone for the first time. I mean, whoever gets a phone call right when they have plenty of time to talk to a stranger, especially with a bad French accent. Now, a phone call is always disruptive. An email boy, don't you just hit delete, 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 just like nobody pays attention. And But a handwritten letter uh, always is personal. You know someone spent time and sort of is unusual these days. It used to be you got lots of letters and now it's pretty rare. And so Brightweiser responded to this letter. We wrote letters back and forth. When I tell you this time scale, I mean, I'm just pretty much the definition of inefficiency. I am just... If you're listening to this show for how to like be a very efficient and quick uh, writer, then you'll just have to turn whatever the equivalent of turning the dial is these days. Um, you'll have to click the button. Um, yeah, so I, I wrote letters back and forth to Brightweiser for more than four years. Finally, he agreed to meet me for lunch without my notebook or tape recorder just for an introductory meeting. Apparently, he was un peu charmant, a little charmed with my bad French accent. And um then he agreed to sit for interviews, and that was when things got really fascinating and cognitive dissonance, uh, uh, the beautiful term you used, uh, came to the fore. We spent at least 40, probably more like 50 hours together, not just formal interviews, but we took road trips across Europe to go to the museums from which he stole so he can reenact his crimes. We took nature walks. We walked through churches. I listened to him speak about how much art meant to him, how much his girlfriend meant to him. But the entire time, and I kind of like, like this Frisian, I was like in my head, do I like this guy? Do I respect him? Or is he just a bastard? Is he just a spoiled brat? Is he like, a, like I love museums. Uh, I've been going to them since I was a kid. It's when, I mean, I'm not a billionaire. I'm a writer. You're doing a podcast, Rick. I'm just going to guess that you're not making billions. Uh, we can't afford Picasso's, we can't afford Da Vinci's, but yet for a couple of dollars, we get to go to museums and see the most amazing works of art that have ever been made. What a gift. There are so many problems with modern society, but museums are one of the great goods. We've all sort of re realized that we should all get to see works. And this guy, by stealing from museums, maybe he's not, he, though he was nonviolent and nobody physically got hurt, really the victims were pretty much everybody. So I'm feeling like pulled, like, God, 
I sort of understand like who doesn't want to have a beautiful work of art in their bedroom and make love to their lover, you know, beneath that work of art. Wow. That seems like a fantasy and drink a glass of wine and sit on a couch and touch the paints. I mean, wow, wow, wow. That sounds fantastic. I mean, but then again, this is a public work. You stole it. And so to this day, 11 years, even though I wrote the entire book, I remain uncertain how I feel about Stefan Breitweiser. And rather than fight against that to like, oh, pick one. I sort of have draped myself in the cloak of cognitive dissonance. And I'm glad that you picked that up too. I kind of find it, well, I don't know. Again, I'll, I'll listen to your listeners and people will send me notes, but I like a character that you can't quite compartmentalize. Uh, a little bit of a shimmera, a little bit of someone who like sort of you you give him your heart and then suddenly he kicks it, dashes it. And like that, I, I kind of like that. I mean, God, I'm feeling like the person who reads my book is going to feel beat up in the end. A and maybe there is a little bit of that, uh, um, not literally, but <laughs> metaphorically, uh, figuratively, you maybe are a little beat up. And um, I kind of, you know, not only did I go for a conversational tone, when I was writing the book, I also had this weird thought in my head that the readers, if there ever were any, when you write a book in like a little enclosed space, you have no idea if it's going to flop or if anyone's going to read it. But these imaginary readers, I thought might act as a sort of jury. And if I presented everything, I was going to say unbiased, but I'm a human. I wrote the book. I'm filled with biases, but is no pulling out, no pulling punches, leave the good and the bad. And maybe the readers themselves can serve as jury. And I like it when an author doesn't tell me what to believe. Like, this is a great guy. This is a terrible guy. No, this is everything this person did and let you decide how you feel. And so maybe I leaned into cognitive dissonance is what I'm trying to say, rather than try to scrub it out. It worked. Uh, I, I thought that one of the, it was just amazingly interesting experience. It's not fasting emotional experience to read the book because you're at once compelled and repelled by the same man and his actions one of the things i think you mentioned that's really interesting and, and is that he he lives with his mother he never works now normally you you introduce me to somebody like this and i'm gonna think well that person's all out and i don't want to know them Yet, that's not, and that feeling, it nagged me all the way through the book, but in a sense, it never, you know, it, it was at, at, sometimes it comes right to the forefront and you think, God, get a job, dude. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you think, my God, you're doing things that not, nobody's ever done. Nobody should do, but you're doing them beautifully. Wow. And I think that that kind of the ability to keep us on the tightrope through the whole book is really pretty amazing. And it's interesting. I'm really glad that you said you leaned into the cognitive dissonance so that I don't feel mentally ill <laughs> for having experienced it. Now, one of the things, that, uh, the first off, this book is super clean. I mean, it's very short for a book that took you 11 years and takes place over about the same amount of time. It, it just reads super fast. There's absolutely no fat in this. So, and, and this is due to 
two parts. The prose is really beautiful, but also, and I've talked to, and there are many sentences in here you might, might want to read three or four times just to experience the joy of reading such a cleanly uh, written sentence. But and but that's something I've experienced with, with you know many great writers. You read Philip Roth, you, you know you're gonna find some sentences that you go wow. But one of the things that this book does is that you write in paragraphs that are just really well done, blocked. I mean, it's just like there are perfect little, little stack of it's like it's a stack of ice cubes. <laughs> Talk about well, creating those paragraphs. Well, I, 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 I appreciate so much everything you said, as I was mentioning before, when you construct a book, you really, um, I'm, listen, I'm human and I will project uh, confidence to you, but really inside it's like, there's, I'm riddled like all humans with uncertainty, self-doubt, worry uh, that no one else is going to read it. So I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. I, First of all, I just want to say overall that, again, to repeat, this is a true story. Like, I really didn't have that much, like, I won't, if, if I was writing a work of fiction, first of all, if this was a work of fiction, you throw it across the room because it's just not believable. If I was working, if I was writing a work of fiction, I would probably have the everything end up differently. It's a, um, this is a classic, we maybe won't give away too much at the end, but it is a classic Icarus story about someone a boy and his girlfriend who fly way too close to the sun, ridiculously risky, and then crash as hard and devastatingly as humanly possible. There's an up and there's a down. And like you said, it's a short book. I think it's 209 pages. And this is like with large uh, space between the lines. Yeah, I like a short, tight book. It doesn't start out that way. You know, I'm always wondering like, man, if you saw how the sausage was made, but you know, I, it's it's not a secret. It's like uh, there's 200 thefts that I had to parse through. I got all these, I got police reports for everything. Um, uh, the transcripts of trials. I, I had developed a close enough relationship with the main character, Stefan Breitweiser, that he gave me signed written permission to see his psychology reports. I interviewed everyone who would speak with me and for the people who wouldn't speak to me, people that knew them. And I took all this and I compiled it together. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands and one more thousand uh, pages of notes and ideas. And I spend a lot of time, I don't know if other writers spend time constructing, but I feel like a sculptor. I feel like I have a big block of granite, a hammer and a chisel, and I just spend my time taking away from all the stuff I have until I have to see something that feels as tight, as clean as possible, but it's also as short as possible. You don't need to read about all 200 deaths, but boy, like they're kind of all fascinating. So how can you like both, you know, zoom in on a couple of important ones, zoom out and say, I needed another, 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 have a love affair coming through it, have this crazy relationship with the mother, have a police chase, have trials. And so I really like having all these little strands on the um, imaginary loom in front of me and, um, I'm so glad that you feel like I know what I'm doing because really uh, it is sort of, I do actually repeat this to myself when I'm writing. Uh, this is not open heart surgery. If I make a mistake, no one's going to die on an operating table. And so, you know, one of the things that happens 11 years, like ridiculous, right? Is that I try something and I realize rather than making a beautiful tapestry, all those threads get knotted up and it's ridiculous. And so luckily the thing about the computer is version 17, you know, you just... Save as version 17, let's start again. So I do a lots of drafts. 
lots of um, false starts. I have at least once I'm even done with an entire draft of a book, I have not just an, a book editor, but at least 10 other first readers that just get their claws out and lay into me. So the secret is that there isn't really much of a secret. There's a lot of labor going on. And um, I do like something that feels clean. I, again, mentioned that I have a lot of children and busyness in my life. And so just tell me the story. You don't have to go a million miles an hour, but don't. I think you had a beautiful phrase that really just spoke to me, which is that you trimmed off the fat. And I really do feel like I try and do that. Every once in a while, I get like, oh, man, you got to know that Picasso got arrested because one of the first people arrested for stealing the Mona Lisa is Picasso. I mean, what a fun little tidbit. But when I when I take a detour, I try and come right back to the story within like a page. And in my mind, not only am I thinking about readers and busy readers, I like uh, I feel like a book should be one international flight long. We could fly from, I live near Salt Lake City, Salt Lake to Charles de Gaulle, and then leave the book in the seat in front of you. You've just read it and there goes your plane ride or something like that. And so uh, I really appreciate you noting that um, nothing against writers that write at huge length, but um, our worlds are so busy. I do like a short story that feels like it's, Gives you everything you need to know to, to come to your own conclusions. Thank you. Now, I'm going to just start, uh, read one of the great sentences. It is an action he suspects that usually lands a thief in prison. It's hesitation. And this is the, the key to his craft. And, and as I read this book, I kind of saw, saw him as practicing, like, it's almost like uh, martial arts, like one of those martial arts where people, like, run up the walls and sideways and go down, um, or jujitsu, or a combination of that and stage magic. Uh, so talk about exactly how he did and and you know describe maybe one of his crimes just just so we kind of wrap our brains around this uh, apparently there's a, a movie coming out soon called the the art thief based on a famous boston burglary and he mentions that too <laughs> and when he mentions what they did in that burglary it's as upsetting to read about to the reader as he feels about it compared to what he does with his art. So first off, uh, just describe kind of how he and Anne Catherine operated and, and, you know, maybe a brief look at one of his thefts. Right. As I mentioned before, Stefan Breitweiser and his girlfriend, Anne Catherine Kleinklaus, they average, like I said, fast more than a theft every two weeks. Uh, always entered a museum the same way, which is the way we all enter it. They went up to the front desk and they bought a ticket, although they always used cash. Don't use a credit card. That's not a good idea for those of you interested in how this all works. Uh, Rick, I was going to say before I get into this answer that uh, I was mentioning my readers and they always come up with great phrases and I know it, I feel something. And then when you mentioned this martial arts thing, jujitsu, and then I jotted down Tai Chi, I was like, oh man, you should have told me that between my second and third drafts. So what a beautiful way to describe how Stefan Breitweiser went about it. And so I just want to say right now that I did not use this martial art reference in my book, but I now wish that I did because it's very beautiful. Um, Jiu-jitsu meaning sort of using the strength of your opponent against them. Uh, when I'm thinking of Tai Chi, I think about these poses. And so Breitweiser uh, 
five foot nine inches tall, very slight, I would guess like 150 pounds, uh, really just like whippity and like uh, life, you know, like a gymnast sort of thing, just a beautiful, like ha ha was blessed with both physical and mental skills when it came to thievery. So how did he steal? I'll, I'll just tell you a couple of little bits of background and an example theft. So Brightweiser started when he was young. He also worked one of his first jobs in high school. He worked in a museum as a security guard. So got this great firsthand uh, knowledge of how little or how much security guards pay attention after a couple of days on the job. As you can imagine, the actual works on the wall fade into the background and you sort of just kind of look at people, and which means that you can steal something and it cannot be noticed for minutes and sometimes even hours and sometimes even days, which seems crazy, but he used this knowledge uh, for his benefit. Another thing is he also worked in a frame shop and ostensibly learning how to put frames on paintings, but really learning how to take them off. Um, a third thing I'd like to mention is you talked about the Isabella Stewart Gardner theft. Now, if anybody was going to mention, hey, anybody know a, a famous art theft? That's probably the one that comes up. That took place in 1990 in a museum in Boston where two guys stole 13 works of art worth somewhere around a half a billion dollars. And this crime has never been solved. It's possibly the most famous unsolved art crime uh, in the last let's go, century. Um, Heidelberger told me in one of our first interviews that he hated to be called an art thief. And he didn't deny anything. The statute of limitations on many of his crimes are run out. He's been tried. He was so open and honest, like almost to a fault about all his crimes, literally going through dozens of his crimes step by step, reenacting them for me in the actual museum. He was wearing a light disguise. So I asked him why he hated to be called an art theft. And he said, name an art thief. And I mentioned this Isabella Stewart Gardner thing. So those two men who robbed the Boston Museum, if you don't know the details, they came in late at night, dressed in police uniforms. They were let in by the night guards. The uh, thieves attacked the night guards, bound their faces with duct tape, handcuffed them to pipes in the basement, already a violent crime that Breitweiser hated. But what he really, really, really hated was what they did next, which is that these two gardener thieves went up to the most beautiful painting in the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, which is a Rembrandt seascape. And they stuck a knife into the canvas and, and carved all the way around the inside of the frame. It's 19 feet around with a knife, a Rembrandt, until they cut it out of its frame. And then it curled up, you know, and the paint was cracking and flit, you know, even if these paintings were ever found, they were never behold. And then they went to another Rembrandt and did it again. They were, as Breitweiser said, savages. They did not care about the art. 99.99% of art thieves only make the world uglier. They don't care about art. They just want to get a couple of bucks. And the thing about museums is it's not a bank. There's not armed guards. They're not bars over the paintings. They're right there worth millions of dollars. Very tempting that you can literally pull off a wall. Uh, very hard to sell them sometimes, but it's so tempting. Breitweiser, unlike almost all real art thieves, was motivated, and I really truly believe this, it was proven through dozens of his actions, he was motivated by aesthetics. He fell in love with specific works of art. He had a, if I asked everyone to, listening, like to close your eyes and imagine the most beautiful thing, we'd all have maybe different answers, thank goodness. Uh, I, I live in the Rocky Mountains. I love sunset and sunrise over the mountains. There's people who would imagine a lover. He imagined 
late Renaissance, early Baroque, that is 16th and 17th century Northern European works of art, painting, sculptures, um, goblets, uh, tableware, etc. This was what drove him just, he was as passionate, Rick, you mentioned to me before, before we uh, jumped on here that you were a collector, like you, you said, you knew this, like he was just a passionate person about them. So he stole these things to just put them in his room and admire them in a way that museums didn't allow to be able to touch them, to be able to see them at night, to sit in a freaking comfortable chair, to make love to your girlfriend in front of them. These are all things that are really frowned upon in a museum. Uh, every single one of them, the chair, the, the bring yourself a drink, drink some wine, make love to your lover uh, in front of them. I don't think a museum's gonna be happy. And uh, so I asked him, if you don't like to be called an art thief, what would you like to be called? And his answer, which is in the book was like, he said, just call me a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style. And so uh, that was his, uh, that was the way he thought of himself as just a collector, you know. You mentioned the kind of art that he liked, and he really had a very specific type. And that also translated to his girlfriend. He liked a very specific type of, of woman. And I thought that, you know, that was an interesting parallel and we saw this play through throughout the book. So talk a, a little bit about the exact type of art that he liked. And, you know, just uh, talk also about his the constancy and the style of his relationship with Anne Catherine, which kind of tracked with the art. You could almost match the ups and downs in their relationship with the kind of art that he was collecting in terms of, but you know, like if he found the affecting piece there, there's Anne Catherine. I mean, it's just a really interesting kind of uh, relationship between the people and the objects they stole. So in the great cosmic dissonance that forms this whole story, you know, one of the questions asked before I get into the actual specifics, let's just, what, when I, if I asked everybody listening, what do you, what yardstick, what benchmark, what measuring unit do you use to say whether your life is, let's just say successful. Some people be like, oh, how much is in my bank account? How large my house is? How healthy my children are? Whatever that may be, Breitweiser's measuring stick was how was beauty, which seems like a weird thing, but I saw it in action. I spent so much time with him. I interviewed everyone who knew him. He wasn't trying to get money. He was trying. He thought the person in the world who was the richest was the one who surrounded himself with the most beauty. And he felt, he said to me that he was the, he said more than once that he felt in the height of his crime spree and with Anne Catherine that he was the richest person in the world. And uh, he really believed that he truly thought that his girlfriend was just the epitome of beauty to him. And luckily we all have our own, uh, you know, inner, it, what our, our attraction is, we can't like type something into a computer, you know, attraction as much as maybe some websites try and break it down into uh, some sort of um, a formula really is, let's just say impossible to, to pro computer program. Uh, and 
he, when he, I mean, I walked through museums with him and I saw him, it's not like this guy was just falling in love with every piece. He would go buy 99 pieces, sort of like, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and know the name of them. Oh yeah, that's that. That's that. And then he would see something that got him in his aesthetic thing and his whole demeanor would change his eyes. You know, his, he is like a Jekyll and Hyde thing where he would come from, become this rather this from this sort of laconic, quiet, a little bit subdued person. And then it was like, he actually described it this way, like an electric current was completed between him and the work. And it was like, literally like shocking. I could watch his fingers twitch, his eyes shot open and he would see a work of art that he loved. And I would ask him to explain what, what made him love it just because he was like, if he'd have been an art professor, boy, that would have been my favorite art professor ever. I just liked the way he described things rather than starting first with like, all these bookish things like form and content and color and this, he would start with emotion, like, look at how, how does this make you feel? And so he loved, as I mentioned before, late Renaissance, early Baroque, 16th, 17th century, Northern Europe, he had this idea. So Northern Europe, not to get too much into the weeds, but I did spend the entire uh, COVID pandemic reading books about art, art thieving, art theory. And so I feel like I gave myself a little education. So I like to like, you know, share my knowledge that I didn't shove into the book, but uh, Northern Europe was oil paints, more Southern, when Southern Europe is some, sort of like uh, Florence and Italy, they use tempura, which is a little more muted colors. He loved these bright colors. This was the age, the Renaissance, where uh, artists were no longer being controlled by, the, this is European artists, were no longer being controlled by the church. They no longer had like the seven, you know, when you go to the medieval wing or the, the you know, the early Renaissance wing, it's always the same 12 pictures of Christ, it seems. These were like, suddenly artists were having this Renaissance, which means rebirth. Uh, they were painting uh, pictures of regular people's lives, not just royalty, but like, you know, scenes of village life and markets and excitement and adding color. And for the first time ever, paintings were signed. They were never signed before that. So this individualism and sort of all these reasons you can't really just feed it into a machine and come out with love but for all these reasons that Breitweiser tried to explain he loved this era of painting and even the everyday objects like he also stole lots of silver um beer steins and wine glasses and cer and ceramic serving platters and ivory sculptures and even like a medical kit and some like um, old books. But everything, this was all before the um, Industrial Revolution, which took, which, which went through Europe in the uh, early 1800s. This was all before that, meaning that every piece, even weapons, he loved to steal old weapons, every piece of every item was made by hand. You couldn't just interchange one. If something broke, you had to remake an entire thing. You couldn't just go to the Ace Hardware store and buy a replacement. And there was something about literally every piece of a gun even being made by hand that transformed it, not from something that was being stamped out by a machine, but this individual object. And as we got more modern, we lost the artistry in everyday life. So Breitweiser had this grand theory that the height of human civilization was right before the industrial revolution when all the knowledge that humans had gained passed from generation to generation, apprentice to master, apprentice, master, the way all those professions used silversmiths, you know, you had an apprentice, they became better than the master and it went on and on. We passed on this knowledge and then machines started stamping things out and we lost it all quickly. But at that height, that was the maximum moment of beauty. And I got to tell you, the way Breitweiser spoke about that was such enthusiasm, passion, knowledge, and just showed me examples 
it was infectious. Like I said, this is why I liked him as a teacher. I didn't become like a huge fan of the Renaissance, but I kind of got it. And like you said on the outset, you know, I think you used the phrase um, compelled and repelled. Like, God, it was so compelling, his theories, and it was so repellent, his actions. And um, yeah, and, and okay, so how did he steal it? Very briefly, no violence. He was sort of like a, a combination. I, I loved what you used in martial arts. I was always thinking a combination of like street magician meets like, um, yeah, it was sort of like a David Blainish thing where he, like he hated the phrase pickpocket, but he was the type of person who could steal something when you're right there, just beautifully attuned to like the limits of both human and technological observation where a camera's lens let out how closely a guard would, um, observe things just very briefly if he stole a painting he would take it off the wall often they were literally like go check out the next time you're in a museum literally just hung on a hook like not even locked to the wall you take it out uh the reason why those gardener museum thieves stuck a knife in it is because a, a painting in a canvas in a frame is very hard to remove from a um museum without getting caught it's big he would turn the painting over remove the frame and then have the uh either a panel of wood which many things were painted on or a piece of paper and he would very carefully protect it he would put it flat on his back usually the paintings he stole were the size of a pizza box or smaller cover it with a large jacket he liked to steal uh, when it was colder outside so he could wear these large overcoats and walk never run carefully out a museum door so he'd remove the frame leave it in the room take the raw painting and then have it pay all the money that he had which came from waiting tables occasionally gifts from his mom and his grandparents he used to reframe these paintings and then when he stole things that were in display boxes that's the other way usually it's either a painting on a wall or something in a display box that's the way museums usually work he rather than pick those very high-tech locks that are inside that are keeping the sliding door of a display case locked, he would cut the seals where the where the panels, uh, a, a display case, if you're picturing like a, a glass cube where the panels met each other, uh, was just sealed with it's two pieces of glass or plexiglass glued with silicon glue. You take a very sharp blade of a Swiss army knife, his only tool, no gun, no knife, no Uzi, no grappling hook, no smoke bombs, no coming in through skylights like Tom Cruise, just walking through the door, saying hello to the to the security guards, and then taking the sharpest blade of his Swiss Army knife when no one was looking, cutting along the seals of a box, vertically, horizontally, all three axes, so he could pull apart the panels just a little bit, stick his hand into the case, pull out the object of his desire. Sometimes he would rearrange, you grab a pen in his hand and sort of push around the other pieces in the box, so a guard looking at the box wouldn't notice an obvious gap. They're not like counting the pieces. Guards don't do that. He knew that from experience. And then the way uh, the four, if you're following me, like you've cut these panels, but really they're so used to being in the same spot. All you have to do is push them back in place and the display case looks untouched. You've stolen something out of a display case in a museum without touching the lock. You've just deconstructed the sides of it, taken something out and pushed it back together. This is sort of extraordinarily impressive. Like I mentioned, there were sometimes tourists in the room while he was doing that. All one person had to do was turn their head and see him and his life could effectively end. And yet 200 times in a row, he was able to get away with this. His girlfriend served as lookout, but this is so far beyond luck. It's in this realm of extraordinary uh, skill as a burglar. <laughs> as a as a robber, you know, he was a thief, but he was damn good at it. And he, you know, one of the questions the book asks is, 
Is it okay if you steal nonviolently for love to protect and care for these pieces, or is it just as bad as what the Gardner Museums did, museum thieves did? And uh, you know, I leave the answer up to you. You know that that is one of the great questions of the book because. In a sense, this is a book one will never finish because every time you think about it, you're going to come down, or at least I find myself coming down on opposite sides of the equation. I think, my God, when you were talking about what he did, the the word I would use is he's a virtuoso. He's almost like a conductor waving the wand. And there's a, a no doubt beauty to his style of theft. Even if it is thievery, I mean, what he did was was in a sense also like ballet. He would almost like dance past a piece and was there before he danced past it and gone after. But you're just watching him or not not even noticing him. And I think that that was one of his great skills was remaining anonymous for so long. He was a master of of anonymity in, in a place where most people are, are anonymous, but still for to, to take 200 amazing pieces of art and never <laughs> strike, you know, anybody's, they catch anybody's attention. That is a, a skill akin to invisibility. I mean, yeah, you mentioned a couple of things. He thought of his attic, Lair as its own work of art. And you're right, there was, an, you know, it's kind of funny, there was an artistry to the way he stole art and the this uh, this secret lair that he uh, stuffed with art and just he and his girlfriend shared was like his masterpiece. Uh, and you mentioned like, you know, on one hand, Brightweiser and Catherine, one theft every 12 days, like living like Bonnie and Clyde. But on the other hand, their life was so circumscribed they had to be so careful they could never have any real friends they could never have anyone over to their house he couldn't have ever have a repair person come into his attic lair like if it broke something broke he had to fix it himself or leave it that way it, you know eventually and Catherine, you know we'll, we'll start talking to her a little bit towards to what happens you know eventually Anne Catherine realizes she's been with this her boyfriend for almost a decade like hey uh what about if I want to start a family? What's the end game here? What do you do when you have $2 billion worth of art? It's not like the police are ever going to stop chasing you. What it was sort of came dawned on her a little bit late. Like what is the end game here? And she started getting nervous and she realized that, uh, you know, as Brightweiser's taking her boyfriend's taking more and more risks, she's feeling like they have to, I mean, how much more art can you, can you need? But uh, Anne Catherine wasn't bitten by the collecting bug like you and especially Stefan Breitweiser was and Breitweiser unfortunately was like no there's always another piece to acquire because there is and eventually this sort of nervousness on behalf of Anne-Catherine boldness on behalf of Breitweiser dawning realization on behalf of his mother increasing risk-taking all of course as anything in life has to um, eventually reaches a critical boiling a boiling point or a point where a mistake is made and this carefully constructed uh life comes crashing down you know one of the things that's amazing about that book is that it really does capture uh, the uh, collector's mindset 
And I think that people who are collectors are going to read this with a large amount of terror because you will see in yourself the same thing happening that happened to Stephon where, as you say, at some point, you know, there's only so much room in a room. Uh, I kept telling my wife as I was getting books that our house was like, well, it's kind of like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. But, you know, <laughs> life does not operate like Doctor Who, alas. <laughs> and, and so at some point you find he he has pieces that of great beauty and he realizes they're of great beauty, but he also realizes that he himself has treated them in a way as badly as those guys who cut up the Rembrandts did. And at that point, the reader's mind meets itself and one of yourselves is thinking, this guy's a great artist. Oh my God, this is a terrible, awful thing and it's going to get much worse. (laughs) But you don't, want it to get we like him we don't want it to get worse but we know that it will so you really capture the inevitability of a downfall of anybody who achieves so great i mean you might build the most amazing company in the world and then you might do you would at some point that company can't get any more amazing you're going to do something less intelligent and everything's going to come crashing down that happens to him and i'm wondering how he felt and how it felt to be with him when he was telling you about his own downfall that you know again that's another kind that's cognitive dissonance but of a very different kind and and it it's you know the the power of this book is it's not only like a, a light and fluffy flight into amazingness. It it has a powerful, tragic, operatic downfall to it. And I think that that's an interesting thing. So first, talk about how it felt to have him reveal his own flaws to you. So after about uh, a dozen years or more than a decade of stealing like nobody has has ever stolen before with extraordinary success and increasing cockiness. Uh, Stefan Breitweiser, who I don't think ever heard of the word moderation. (laughs) Um, You know, there's just, there's just no middle ground for him. It's like everything always, uh, I mean, I sort of, as a journalist, I was like, I was enthralled, but as a human, I was like, you know, just like, I can't believe you didn't not just leave good enough alone, leave great, like, you know, the greatest thing ever. Like there was never like, it was just never any point where anybody, where he ever thought to himself, Oh, I've reached, you know, I've reached this pinnacle anyway. So uh, yes, I, the time when I was able to interview Breitweiser, it was at a very fascinating time of his life, which is he was, it's not a secret that he gets caught in the second half of the book is his downfall, uh, which uh, is as in its own way, as thrilling as maybe the rise and unexpected where you know what the mother gets involved the girlfriend gets involved but he's the one who really uh has to try and he wants to try and save his mother and girlfriend and 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 himself but and his collection and he just can't um he loses he loses uh, 
everything in his life falls apart, but yet he's the same sort of person who wants to make it all right with another, with another theft. And I really liked the word you used, which was operatic. Um, again, this is a true story. This is what happened. It, the rise and the fall are, I think that without both those parts, the story loses its completion. And uh, so, you know, what happens to the works of art? Let's leave that as a surprise to the reader, but it is shocking what happens to uh, his collection, this collection that Breitweiser thought he would love and protect as better, as good as, if not better than any museum. He just got completely carried away. There was it, no... It's as shocking as as the his ability to take them in the first place. Yeah, something, so exactly. The whole, this is why this is like a... I'm not hesitant to say almost once in a lifetime journalistic story where every beat is more ridiculous, crazy, unexpected than the last. And I really love the way, uh, you know, every all the beats unfolded, even though in the end you might be stuck with a little bit of heartache. Such is real life. No, you know, no, you know, exactly. That's the way, that's the way life works. I would, uh, I would love you know, in the in the fairy tale version of this story, then yes, they live happily ever after in a castle, you know, filled with art. But in real life, which is what this story is, uh, that's not the way things work. Police go after you. Mistakes are made. You know, humans protect themselves. And um, I, yeah, I, I'm still thinking about that word operatic. I really love that. But uh, um, so I talked to Brightweiser in this sort of, as he was like, his wings had melted and he was crashing to earth, uh, which is a very uh, emotionally and sort of um, intellectually fraught time. And I like speaking with people as they're facing trials and possibly huge jail sentences um, that, for lack of a better phrase, being freaked out, like makes you rather than uh, cautious with how you speak to a journalist, like sort of incautious where you just want to tell your entire life story. And I, uh, in other books, also, I've interviewed people while they're in jail, awaiting between being arrested and being punished is that interstitial zone of complete terror. And you feel like there's no floor beneath you. You're just falling and uh, you want to talk to someone and tell them your whole story. And I, I, I admit that as a journalist, that that is like kind of a cool spot to talk to somebody where they're very fraught emotionally and raw and not thinking, how do I want to shape myself to this? journalist or well you know what what details do I want to omit or exaggerate it's really this sort of like I just got to tell you everything and get it all off my chest before I'm locked away feeling and uh, that's when I interviewed him and I thought it was um, I myself was sort of Brightweiser's extraordinarily emotional person and I couldn't help by being um, by feeling some of what he was describing, uh, thrill of the hunt, ridiculousness of the, of the law breaking and deserved and yet also tragic uh, downfall. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I, if it was just a book of thief, theft after theft after theft and happily ever after, it wouldn't be bad, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have this sort of, uh, it wouldn't have the second half, which I think uh, makes uh it's sort of it, it's it's like a necessary um necessary um counterpoint to the first half in a sense it's kind of the anti-catharsis yeah that's a very good way to put it you know um one thing too uh, to wrap this up is that brightweiser is is a canny guy he's not dumb i mean one of you talk 
talk about this, and it's one of the things that makes him appealing, is he's very intelligent. He reads all the art journals. He understands what's going on in the art world, and that's kind of why, part of why he's a, a, an effective thief, is he, he knows all everything about the pieces he's interested in, up to, up to the point. Sometimes he will, might be greeted by something new, and he understands his own taste, but he's very informed about art, but he's also very informed about the way he's going to be seen. He puts you through, what, 11 years to, to, to get his story. That's a long time. This is a man who's well in control of his image as much as he can be. Um, what? Talk about the prospects uh, for a movie of this book, just in terms of what he thinks and your relationship with him. Yeah, so I, a, a journalist-subject relationship is always a fascinating thing. You know, I would never call it, oh, we were friends, because that is not correct. Now, I came to him as a journalist. I didn't pretend to be his friend. Um, I'd mentioned that the last time I saw him was at his most recent trial in March, and we saw each other. This was after the book was finished and before it was published, but I had sent him a sent him a copy, and um, he was warm and friendly to me, which I was surprised about. I did not write this book for Stefan Breiser at all. I wrote it for uh, myself and for readers. Uh, not, I, no part of me was that I must please this thief at all. I wanted to. I didn't want to denigrate him and I didn't want to elevate him. I wanted to look at him squarely in the eyes and uh, write, write something that felt as accurate as humanly possible. Um, so we have a slight relationship now. Uh, I have a tendency, as you probably can imagine from all this babbling I'm doing, uh, to wear people out. I have lots of questions and uh, a book project is so intense that eventually you do have to call it quits. Although I maintain a fascination and interest in almost all the subjects that I've written about, I sort of follow them. Um, so we have a, occasionally there'll be a, a small email going back and forth, but you did mention a movie and I am not in the movie business. I write books, but I've sold the, I've optioned the rights to this uh, book to see if there's a movie. It feels extraordinarily visual. It seems like it would make a great uh, film. That's not really what I worry about too much. I'm not a film. I don't even write the screenplay. I'm certainly not uh, involved in the movie, but I have a front row seat. So let's see what happens. I think that Breitweiser himself would like there to be a film for a couple of reasons. Like men, even though he was able to keep his ego in check for so many years and not like, if I had stolen a work of art, I'd probably be bragging all around town and you know immediately the word would get out. But he was very quiet about his success, but he is sort of like many criminals and uh, an egotist and was happy to tell his story of daring do. And uh, the second reason I think he might like a film is that I did not pay him for this book. I do not pay people for their stories, which seems a little weird, but it taints the whole thing. Uh, when I tell, when I'm, when I'm interviewing someone, including Stefan Breitweiser, the, the art thief, I said, you know, the, the rules are that uh, everything is on the record. You can't be like off the record on everything you say is on the record. You have no editorial control. I will write what I write and you cannot even see it until it's done. And you're not getting paid, uh, which seems like it would send someone running in the opposite direction. But uh, 
generally speaking, people who care about their story see really understand that that's the way to make a story sort of pure and untainted. And he agreed to that, but he can get money off of a movie. And so that is a way for him to profit. So there is a money incentive for Brightweiser. It's not going to make him a millionaire, which some people think, but it could give him a couple of dollars. Um, uh, but that's, that's really not, I don't pay him out of my own pocket. So um, we'll just see sort of what happens. And I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of there being a movie, I, uh, one of my earlier, my earliest book, uh, True Story, became became a movie. I think you 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 mentioned that in the introduction, and I liked the way it uh, came out. It was fascinating to to, to watch. I do not. Uh, let me just make it phrase rephrase that. I try not to be over controlling. Like uh, if someone, if there's a, a a movie, a film director that has a vision, uh, he or she can just run with it. Do your own thing. Uh, uh, a, a film by by nature is usually a work of fiction. So you can fictionalize some things. I am a journalist. I like to stick to the, to the facts, but um, let's just, you know, none of this process. I mean, the strike is, I think even the, the actor strike hasn't been resolved yet. So nothing's happening in Hollywood now, but let's just see what happens. But uh, I've been, I've been loving talking about the, the book with you. Uh, and it's sort of, even though there's a whole visual component to art stealing, I always look for projects that feel like they're a book. They don't feel like a radio show. They don't feel like, you know, um, a painting. It feels like, you know, it feels like this, the best way to impart this might be, might be through the pages of a book. And that's, that's what I felt. And Brightweiser himself, such an avid reader, uh, was a, was a weirdly journalistic joy, joy to, to speak with since he was so descriptive. Almost, it's like talking to you. You're so dang descriptive. I've been writing notes the whole time on uh, phrases I should have used in my in my book. Well, you know, one thing I'll say finally is that what this book really is, is it's an exemplar of the power of story and narrative. We are narrative species. That's the name of this podcast. And that's because if I ask you to tell me who you are, you will tell me a story and you tell us the story of exactly who Stefan Brightwider was. And it is a complete story. And, you know, I, for all the incredible things, the the real journalistic, you know, joy in this book for you is not, I mean, it's great to read, to read all about the thefts and, you know, his downfalls, but it's the story. It's the story that is really captivating this. And this is a perfect example of a very human story that has some mind-boggling heights. I thank you for saying that. As I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, I'm Brightweiser's measure of wealth was beauty, and my measure is sort of like, what's the most beautiful story? That's what makes me feel extremely fulfilled. I am a story collector. Uh, running around the world, not being very well paid, but collecting amazing stories. And this is possibly the most uh, sort of whatever you want to call that enriching story, even though it's a tragedy in the end that, that I've come across. So I think that I think much more you were trying to say that much more eloquently than I did. But I agree with you. That is my that is my currency story. And so I'm so happy that we are able to discuss it together. The new book by Michael Finkel is The Art Thief, a true story of love, crime, and a dangerous obsession. Thank you for joining me, Michael. What a pleasure. That was super fun.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.